Welcome to Streams of Progress, where we bring you weekly conversations with many of the UAE's prominent leaders and thinkers. Each of our guests are actively contributing to the vitality of the UAE community and economy. Our goal in the podcast is to inspire you to drive progress in your professional and personal life. Hey everyone, this is Merad, and this week on Streams of Progress, I sat down with Stuart Oda, founder and CEO of Alaska Life, where they are empowering local communities to grow fresh food with smart, next-generation technology solutions. We covered his career from being an investment banker in Merrill Lynch, to working as part of the Emerging Market Business Strategy Team for Dell China, to finally becoming the agritech pioneer he is today. This episode was longer than our typical interviews, as Stuart was kind enough to share a lot of his insights into agritech and the future of agriculture. So let's jump right into it. Sitting down with Stuart Oda, founder and CEO of Alaska Life. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Before we get into Alaska Life, let's get to know who you are, Stuart. Sure. So tell us about your background. Let's start with your childhood. (laughs) Where does this begin? Yeah, uh, I'm second generation Japanese American. Uh, born in Colorado and uh, moved to Southern California when I was quite young. Uh, went to high school, middle school in Singapore. And then I went back to, uh, to the States for college. So I went to UCLA. And uh, I studied politics, but uh, the economy was really good. So in 07, after graduating, I, went to, I joined investment banking and uh, moved to Tokyo. Uh, so I did that for, for, uh, for five years and then really wanted to be more on the corporate strategy side. So I left... Merrill Lynch to join Dell Computers, uh, and along with the career change, I moved to China. So I was tired of looking at these emerging markets, these really, really fast-growing economies from the outside. I wanted to be inside. Um, I didn't want to read about them in the books or in the newspapers, uh, so I moved to China. Um, and that was in 2011. So it's been, it's been quite a number of years since I've been in China and started Alaska Life uh, in 2013, so quickly after joining Dell. So what was that transition? So you studied, you were Bruin, you studied political science and business economics, right? Then Merrill Lynch. And even Merrill Lynch, it's like a career journey. You went from an intern to an analyst and associate. So you were there a while. Yeah. I mean, my first internship was was Merrill. Uh, They were the only ones that that pretty much called me back. Uh, And so from the age of 20 until 26 for seven years, I, I... was working with Merrill Lynch uh, as uh, as intern, um, as analyst, as an associate. Yeah, the the world of actually investment banking was intriguing to me, and my first introduction to it was in two thousand and three to two thousand and four. So after my freshman year, and the reason for that was Google was IPOing, and so it was a very interesting time in both the finance world but also in the tech world. That such a gem of the technology industry was going to IPO. And so I learned a lot about finance during that summer and bought the shares of the of the of Google as after it IPO'd, which was really really exciting. If I held on to it now, yeah, that was a smart move. <laughs> I could have retired maybe, but <laughs> um but yeah, so it was really interesting and and uh for me what really interested me about banking was when I did um a really intense internship uh, when I was a junior and one of the big deals that I did was a fundraising for um, a biotechnology company called Amgen. Oh, Amgen. Yeah. Okay. And what was exciting was that I found out that you could indirectly impact the lives of individuals that you would never meet by helping a company like Amgen raise money for them to build, to, to develop drugs that would 
uh, impact the lives of, of cancer patients or people with diabetes or any of these things. And so it was really exciting for me to be able to be in an industry that can indirectly impact the lives of so many. If you are a doctor and you have a hospital, you can only help those that come to your hospital. But as a banker, I felt that the impact that you could make, um, what it, although it is indirect, was was significant. So not only was it interesting to me as an industry and as a as a profession, but also the, the opportunity for impact was was very exciting. Yeah. So speaking of impact, is that why you chose to pursue political science? Did you were thinking of impact? Actually, no, um, I thought I would be a lawyer. Like many poli-sci. Yeah, it was either I would be a lawyer with aspirations of potentially um, joining the State Department uh, to be an ambassador um, for a meaningful post. Like, honestly, I was a declared international relations major, and also I did model United Nations in, in, in both high school and in college. And so international politics was very interesting to me, um, and it was also very relevant um, and so I was a, went into political science thinking that I would literally be a lawyer on track to joining eventually the State Department, joining the public sector. But, you know, be, in 03, you know, I discovered this, in, this incredible thing called finance. Um, and the economy was good enough where they could absorb people like me in 07. Um, just before the crash happened, uh, they could take people that had the passion had a little bit of experience, but not really the technical expertise. Um, and in 08, when everything came crashing down, um, I, I continued my journey uh, at Merrill, which was a very interesting time in the finance world, but also in the corporate world. So I learned a lot of, you know, it's it's great in such an early part of my career to have experienced something so devastating across not just the direct industry itself of finance, but also the the knock on effects that happen yeah. in other other kinds the of ripple world. effect onto everything yeah seeing like tier one companies go bankrupt uh, my brother was working at Lehman oh <laughs> I was at Merrill Merrill was purchased my brother's company ceased to exist um, some of my corporate clients like Japan Airlines went bankrupt they're one of two companies in the entire history of the Japanese stock exchange that hit one yen stock price and then was delisted. Um, the other companies also happen to be a client of mine. It's a shipping company. Um, Is there a theme? <laughs> yes. But to kind of see this at such an early stage of my career um, maybe gave me a little bit more perspective. I think a lot of times when the economy is going great, you don't really know if somebody is good or bad. It's very difficult to understand the nuances of good and great. But when something is very, very difficult or challenging where these shocks happen, the survivors and the, the people that thrive even within these, these environments, it's very clear to be able to pinpoint somebody and saying they are great. They're not good. They're not bad. And so at a very young you know, point in my career, I was able to have exposure and to understand these, these smaller nuances. And so it was, um, it was very transformative. It was, very, it was a very big impression. Uh, and one of the weird things that I learned is that the people that you may think know better, um, oftentimes may not know better. Uh, it's very odd to think that somebody that's been doing something for 30 years could possibly make a worse decision than you, but sometimes they do out of either legacy or out of um, some kind of irrational or, or maybe some, some type of loyalty, yeah. uh, something that's very difficult to explain. At the same time, they probably also haven't seen this type of, like it's a global thing and right. it's, once in a lifetime or yeah yeah honestly it's it's 
at least in their within their careers, some of these things were was the first time they've seen it. Yeah. Um, people that had survived the Asian financial crisis in the late nineties, you get into the middle of the two thousands. They've all they've seen since then was ten years of just absolute economic growth, uh, and then to suddenly be exposed to these things, um, to go from a company very proud flagship carrier of an airline of a, of a national carrier of a, of a country like Japan to being delisted and then to have to reemerge out of bankruptcy. Like these are things that, you know, they've never, what's interesting is that these are the types of companies that 40 years ago attracted the best talent from the best university in Japan. So they had the smartest minds and then this could happen. So it's interesting to kind of keep some of these in perspective and to, to keep a, a healthy level of disrespect towards whatever is legacy uh, that isn't to say that you should disregard it, but maybe it's, you know, it's, it's something that you should learn from, uh, and you should internalize whatever it is that they do well. Um, but it's not something that it's not sacred text, right? It's not something you should blindly follow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to move on to Dell China. I want you to, but before that, you, you mentioned your high school years were in Singapore. Yep. What would you say was your takeaway? Cause Singapore is similar to Dubai. Very cosmopolitan. Was yeah. it at that time as well when you were growing up? Yeah. Uh, so I moved to Singapore when I was 12. So I did my middle school and high school there. Uh, father's job moved from Japan to managing a factory in Malaysia. So instead of the family moving to Malaysia, we were in Singapore. Um, so and he I, was flying in and out? Oh, no, no. He was right across the border. He was in Johor So very, very close by. He could drive there as a commute. Um, and JB at the time wasn't as developed as it is now. There's okay. a lot of investment from Koreans, Japanese, from all over the world. It's, it's an incredibly well-developed and beautiful place now. And at the time, maybe a little bit less so. Um, it was still an incredible place to be. I loved it. And, um, but yeah, it's an incredible privilege. I'm going to private school for the first time, a British-based private school, and an American's pl- uh, American, you know, American school, f- private school for high school. Like, this is the peak of, of privilege, um, I got to travel a lot because of being in Singapore. There isn't much to do on the island. So to have fun, you would have to travel often. So um, so it really built a lot of opportunity for me to explore my independence, um, to not be fearful of different cultures, of different geographies, of different types of foods, climates. Um, so it was honestly, at the time, obviously, I hated it. And I was terrified because all I heard about Singapore at the time was that they came people. Um, there was a lot of... Um, you know, a lot of the news that travels to any country for that matter, not just about Singapore to America or, you know, China to the rest of the world is just, it's a very skewed and a very, you know, a very small, you know, look into that city or that culture. And, you know, obviously terrifying things spread much faster than great things. Yeah, it's easier to spread a rumor, right. a negative rumor, right. than it is to some yeah, so positive. It was still PR. a point. It was still a point in Singapore's development when they were censoring media, um, censoring movies, censoring a lot of these things, and so it was a very unique time to go there. And you know, this is really in 1997. So like AOL, like internet boom at the consumer level is really, really starting to take off with instant messenger. And so to kind of like to be in a in a new city, new country building new friendships um, when technology is, is really coming online. It was very exciting. Um, and obviously, being there, like, I have lifelong friends from, from high school and middle school. 
So was it AOL AIM or was it ICQ? Uh, it was both. Okay. It was like kind of starting from ICQ and then transitioning to AIM. Um, so I'm sure the noises that the computer was making was really annoying <laughs> for my parents. Um, but yeah, just kind of to be in a new geography, climate, culture, food. I mean, everything was different from the States. Because prior to that, you were in Colorado? Uh, prior to that, I was in Southern California. So Southern I was in Orange California. County. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was in Orange County. So, you know, right after Colorado, when I was young, I moved to Southern California to Orange County. And then from there, I moved to Singapore. So, you know, it, to because of that and that experience at that point in my life, I am not fearful of starting over. So, um, in fact, there's a small part of me that that loves to be able to move to a new geography and then to reinvent myself. So it's like the challenge of that. Yeah, part of it is the challenge. And, and yeah, it really is just part of it is the opportunity and part of it is the challenge is to be able to go somewhere and be completely anonymous and then to rebuild. Um, and, you know, coming to Dubai for the first, coming to the UAE for the first time in the beginning of 2016 and then really from the DFA program. So September 2016 until now to come to a new place. I don't speak the local language. Um, everything from the culture to the food to the climate um, to the way in which business is done is very, very new to me. Um, and it's it was very exciting. But I think you've managed well to learn the nuances <laughs> so far. Yeah, I've flown here more than anywhere else in the world. I flew here last year 23 times. 23 times. Yeah, so 46 flights there and back. Um, Racking up those miles. Racking up miles. I'm like, yeah. But it's... I think for me, it's really is, um, it's, it's much easier for me to, it, it's, it's amazing because when you do it 20, when I did it 23 times, it's like watching a time lapse. If you come here twice a year, things change at a pace where you can't keep up really. But if you can come here twice a month, it really is like watching a time-lapse movie or a film to really see the small changes happen incrementally and you can kind of see the outcome of those things. And so to do that, I did that for three years in a row, um, traveling here over 20 times a year since 2016. And so to be able to see this really slow time-lapse, or I guess really fast time-lapse. Yeah, um, it's almost every two weeks, 23. So it's really, really exciting to see how quickly things can change um, and how bold some of the announcements are and it makes me envious because I'm Japanese American and both of my countries that I have nationality for don't do these things yeah. so it makes me jealous whenever I hear these big announcements happen because um, whenever Japan does these initiatives around like subsidies for startups or like yeah. these programs it's like oh we have a cash prize of or like a, a cash subsidy of like you know like of five thousand dollars they can get over two years or whatever and it's just like <laughs> You know, like who's that like, incentive like a, for? Who's yeah. incentivized by that? Right. It's like a day's worth of salaries or like a day's worth of rent. Um, but it's it's really exciting to see the kind of support. You know, to to really be a knowledge based economy um, and to not be fearful of change. Uh, I think with some cultures and some countries, maintaining the status quo is very important. Uh, things are very comfortable and they don't really need to change. Like if they can just maintain this in perpetuity, all future generations will be free of suffering and they'll be very comfortable is their idea. Um, And obviously if you're standing still, then chances are things are going to progressively become worse. You have to constantly innovate and progress, whether that's 
psychologically, socially, environmentally, economically to be relevant. Yeah. And you have to keep up. Right. Because even so, if you're not doing anything, everyone else is still progressing. Right. So essentially that mentality, you know, I don't, um, I'm a second child, so I'm very impatient. And so, you know, standing still is, is very difficult for me to do. Yeah. For any amount of time. Speaking of challenging and reinventing yourself, how did you go from Merrill Lynch to taking the position in Dell China? Because you yeah. had to move to China, right? For that? Yeah. So, yeah. and what was your position there? A corporate development senior advisor? Yeah. Sounds fancy. Yeah. I really didn't do anything when I was there. Um, I, so the big, the biggest thing for me was that at the very beginning, my, my incentive or my strong motivation to join banking was the ability to indirectly impact the lives of many. Uh, and I was tired of being the indirect side. So after a company has decided their strategy, one of the ways in which they can execute it is to raise money. They can execute it by doing many other things, but one of those ways is to raise money. And so a banker would be called uh, to help them raise that money so they can execute that project from a financial perspective. And I wanted to be more on the development of the strategy side which is why I went from the finance industry, which is essentially a service provider to these companies, to joining the company's corporate business development side directly. So I wanted to move to a place that would give me the opportunity to be a part of that strategy, you know, the ideation side of it. Um, and my only caveat was I had to, they had to let me work in China. I'd never stepped foot in China at the time. Um, I, I didn't speak any Chinese no Mandarin. No, no Mandarin. I'd never been to mainland China before ever in my life. The closest I got was Hong Kong. And that was my only condition is whoever would take me and send me to China. To mainland. Yeah, to mainland China. And uh, Dell was the only one that gave me an opportunity. What year was this? This is in 2011. 2011. So um, they gave me the chance. And I'm very thankful for it. it. For the first time, it gave me an opportunity to see like a real emerging market at a time in my career where I could understand what I was looking at. So a lot of the emerging market countries that I'd seen when I was in high school or in middle school being in Singapore, it was very difficult for me to understand what I was looking at. So when I went to Thailand to go debate or to go to Kuala Lumpur to play sports um, or to go to these different places for, for school trips, it's very difficult for me to understand, you know, to contextualize what it is that I was looking at. Um, I was just too young and too immature. And, you know, after having done banking for, for a while, when I went to China, I could understand what I was looking at. And so I felt it was, I gave banking five years to convince me that it's a lifelong love or it's something that is just kind of a stepping stone. And after five years, it just wasn't my thing. And so um, I transitioned to the to the corporate side. Yeah, the strategy and right. the hands-on. And so, and China... For Dell for China at the time was really exciting because they were making a massive transition where they were creating a brand new team called the Global Emerging Markets Team, the GEM team. And our task was to make Dell relevant in the top 10 emerging market countries in the world. And in doing so, Dell would be relevant in the future. So if we were top, for, if we were number one, number two, or number three in, in all of these markets, the combined impact of that is that we would be globally number one or number two or number three. And that would give us enormous leverage um, from a brand perspective, but also for negotiating. So we would get cheaper uh, microprocessors from Intel, yeah, or we would get cheaper power, stuff, yeah. right? And so it allows us to have the scale, but also allowed us to have the brand reach uh, that would make us relevant in perpetuity. 
And so we cared about selling, you know, these computer, the, the hardware. Uh, and it was a very exciting time to be at Dell. And at, at the beginning, I covered 10 countries. And at, in the end, I ended up covering probably over 40. Um, being part of that team, I got to go to Thailand. I got to go to Burma. Um, I got to go all throughout China to see how people engage with technology, not in major tier one cities, but in lower tier cities, which is very interesting because a computer is also a TV and it's like their main source of education, entertainment and work. Um, and this isn't because their apartment is too small, like let's say in Japan. So they need to have a very compact thing that can service all these all use in one cases, device. right? But for them, it just is kind of their portal into the world were these things. And, you know, Lenovo had a very strong strategy around exporting China's roadmap. So they were taking the ThinkPad brand and a lot of their new products on the Lenovo brand and creating what they called the just good enough product. It was exactly what people wanted, nothing extra. And because of that, they were able to produce, you know, over a million devices for each of these product lines, get huge volume, uh, and they were very successful. And so, you know, Dell we were trying to find ways in which we can replicate our brand strength globally uh, and our manufacturing partnerships uh, locally in China uh, and then to be able to export that. Um, and I, yeah, I won't go into the details of, of, of how I left, but... Because um, that, you know, that was the next question. How did you go from this to Alaska Life? But we yeah, well, that. So, no, so, so the, the transition, so the Alaska Life part is easy for me to explain how I left Dell is a totally, it's a, it's a, it's another story itself, but the Alaska life side of it was the great thing about being part of the global emerging markets team was that we were tasked at the very beginning to quantify the challenges and opportunities that existed in these 10 key countries. So we had to do an exercise of first selecting the countries. And once we selected them, what was it about these countries and more granularly about the cities that we were targeting to sell into that um, would allow us to create the right strategies and the right products to be successful in those markets. So what would their populations need going forward or trends or right, future right. So trends? Part of it was trends. So some of these things were very macro-focused yeah. things, and some of these things were very micro-focused things, like household-level things. And what was interesting is these major trends emerged that were consistent, terrifyingly consistent across almost every city we'd ever looked at. And some of these, these research reports came out of Intel, some of our partners that we work with. And some of the things are related to income. So once the household income reaches a certain amount, which is, let's say, the equivalent, let's say a, la- a low-end laptop is the equivalent of four and a half weeks of pay, which is a month's worth of pay, then the market share or the penetration of that product goes from, let's say, sub-10% within two years to above 90%. And so we did a lot of research into income, into these different types of opportunities. And the more and more I did research, so there's an entire team looking into the politics and how do we uh, address some of the political landscapes that exist in these markets. And then I was tasked on looking more at infrastructure and finance. What are the digital infrastructure that exists and also the physical infrastructure that would indicate that would give us more information about how to be successful in those markets. And what became clear was that some of these places... Well, a lot of these places lacked both the digital and the physical infrastructure. But the more I looked into the physical infrastructure, a lot of people look at telecom as the limiting factor. They say the last mile doesn't have the internet, which is true. But 
one thing that I looked at a lot was the physical infrastructure was lacking, and that was actually impacting food and nutritious food access. So they could have access to cheap calories because you can store that very easily. You can dehydrate it and put it in a bag and store it somewhere. But you can't get access to fresh produce because they don't have a cold chain. They don't have a refrigerator. So it was very interesting to see how the physical infrastructure and the lack thereof or the challenges that existed there was affecting people's access to highly nutritious food. And so it became this very early on Adele became kind of this weird obsession of mine of trying to figure out why it is that these things existed. And some of these things were political. Some of them were economics. Some of them were purely geographical. Um, and, you know, out of that frustration came Alaska Life. It, and really the vision of the company has never changed. And it's really been to democratize access to fresh and nutritious food by democratizing access to the means and then the knowledge of production. And so we wanted to empower people to be able to produce these things in the most economical way possible uh, and as locally uh, as possible. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the research that I did at Dell, actually. So just for our listeners, so what is Alaska Life? You mentioned your vision right now, but yeah. what is... Alaska Life is an agricultural technology company, and we build indoor farms, and we also build farm management software and solutions to make food production more localized and more data-driven. So essentially what we do is we build both the hardware and the software that would make the production of food um, a little bit more efficient, a little bit smarter. Can the software exist without the hardware? They can. So they can. Right now, a lot of our things are bundled together, and our goal is to be able to unbundle them so that, and really the goal there is to be able to take, I guess the great thing about, and maybe the challenge of Alaska was, um, as, as I've explained my career, there's no agriculture in there. And so um, I'm just about as non-technical of a co-founder or a founder of a company as they come. So you have finance and you have like a little bit of, you know, computer hardware and IT. Uh, and then my education is in politics. And so the ag side is missing. But what's great is that once the I quit Dell when the blueprints for our com first commercial farm, the prototype farm, was completed. And so as soon as I quit... I went to go with my co-founder to procure a secondhand shipping container in Tianjin in the ports. You can just go to the port and buy one, which is a really interesting experience. In right off the shelf or right off the boat? I <laughs> know, uh, like literally in the port. You just get off of the train, go to the shipping yard and just say this one, and they'll ship it to, to Beijing. Um, so not only did it teach me a lot of different types of skill sets, um, I'd never really done anything related to electrical To, to engineering, really, or construction. Um, and, you know, to we started by building this original design that we had, which was terrible, uh, and started by just growing. And what's interesting is that because we, or because I was so, and we were so non-technical, we made a lot of mistakes. So the tools that we built were specifically meant to reduce the number of failures that I had, for example. And what's interesting and what, you know, what would, I guess, make sense now is that any tool that would help me make less failures would help another farmer make less failures too. And so the exciting thing is that all the tools that we're developing at the outset to essentially support um, or to really to augment the farmer 
uh, in terms of either labor efficiency or consistency or quality. These are all tools that translate well into the current agricultural industry. So what's really exciting is that we can take all of our hardware and software products and distribute them unbundled, for example, to improve the operations of greenhouses, of traditional farms, um, to make it so that they can operate more efficiently, more consistently, and eventually more profitably. So in a way, solving for your own weakness was an opportunity of your product or value add of your product. Yeah, I mean, we always had the goal of, of to, to democratize, to really to expand the utility of our products. You know, like indoor farming, you could have a million indoor farms and you couldn't produce, possibly produce enough food to feed the world. That's just not how energy works and that's just not how economics works. Having said that, indoor farming is another one of several methods of food production that exist that allows the other methods, that the currently existing methods of food production, to focus more on crops that they're good at. So if there was only one form of transportation, it would be very inefficient because you would have to use that one tra transportation method, let's say a car, to get from Dubai to Beijing, but you also have to use it to get from, uh, let's say, f to get across the street. But because you have cars and you have scooters and you have skateboards and you have bicycles, you have planes, trains, spaceships, there's so many different modes of transportation. Each one can really focus on being great at that thing. And with the food production, the methods of food production um, are significantly less in variety compared to other things. So the transmission of data is also has many, many varieties and All those things allow each different ways of communication to be more efficient. So some things are better with email, some are better with chat, some are better with a phone call, um, some are better just with snail mail, right? And so it's, it's exciting that indoor farming allows, indoor farming is amazing at doing certain things, and it allows the existing greenhouses and field farms to really, really specialize in things that they're good at, instead of growing crops that they are not optimized for. So try to create that extra method to create that new method right now they're talking about the hyperloop being a fifth mode of transportation but to be able to create these new modes um is very exciting but you know to be really to be realistic it's not something that's going to end world hunger um but it will be something that allows the agricultural industry in general to be significantly more efficient which is very exciting yes yeah, so you pretty much optimize for what you're good at right and in terms of just for our listeners what are these indoor farming good at and What's the difference with a greenhouse? Because a lot of people know greenhouses. Yeah, so first of all, it's indoor and it's also vertical, which means that in a typical farm, whether it's a greenhouse or whether it's a field farm, grows two-dimensionally. So they grow one layer of crop um, across a large field of land. And indoor farming allows you to grow multiple layers. And so you can actually grow three-dimensionally. So you can grow um, crops several stories high. Uh, some of the biggest farms have 18 floors. And so... In a very small space, you can grow an enormous number of crops. And they're optimized currently to grow things that are leafy greens, things essentially that are difficult to preserve. So you, don't, you can't really freeze romaine lettuce, and you can't really freeze basil. And so the things that are difficult to preserve, things that have very short shelf life, and that things that have high seasonality, these are all things that indoor farming is fantastic at growing. But you, because of the energy intensity, you, growing things like rice, you can do it, but it would be economically unfeasible. So right now we're growing everything from tomatoes, cucumbers, sorry, not cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers, chilies, microgreens. So all different kinds of watercresses, pea sprouts, wheatgrass. And then we grow everything from romaine lettuce to arugula to, to different kinds of herbs. And speaking of that, 
there's this element of locality as well, right? Yeah. In terms of, you hinted at it, it's a container. In theory, farms tend to be in, outside the city. They tend to be yeah. in different places. You, in a way, would allow locality of yeah, these farms. So right now, kind of like our off-the-shelf product is an upcycled shipping container. So we can take over this this pre-existing structure and then turn that into a fully functional farm, plug-and-play, just electricity and water, and the next day or that day you have a farm. Um, we've actually taken the internal systems and put it into an underground parking structure in central Beijing. And what's interesting about that is that it's a very urban, indoor, vertical, highly local uh, farm. And the reason we're able to do that is because our relationship with transportation is changing. So transportation as a service is becoming more and more acceptable and common. And what that's doing is... Unfortunately, it's leading to street-level congestion because cars are constantly on the road, drivers looking for, for riders. But what it's doing is it's making certain infrastructure in the city like idle. parking. Right, like parking lots. And so the reason why we're able to take over a parking structure in a city like Beijing that has 24 million residents is because of that. Um, in some places, several hundred thousand cars are taken off the road. DD estimates that they've taken several million cars off the road. So that has enormous impacts in terms of control for pollution in the cities. Uh, but it also allows these new activities uh, to happen. And, you know, with Travis Kalanick, what he's doing right now in the States is creating, you know, he did cloud kitchen, he invested in cloud kitchens. And so essentially he's creating these dark kitchens in unused parking structures. They're highly localized. They're really, really good location in the middle of the city. Real estate is incredibly cheap and easy for logistics to get in and out. And so to be able to, take these idle or underutilized real estate in the middle of the city and convert them into kitchens or into farms um, is becoming something that I think will be very commonplace. Uh, And it's really exciting to think about how previously where people grow food and where people work and live have always, have almost always been mutually exclusive. So if you go back to 10,000 years, when we first domesticated plants and animals, they kind of coexisted. The farm and the cities were really close together. And that had a lot of benefits. Uh, And now, more and more, our supply chain for food is becoming longer and longer. So our food miles are expanding. Over the past years, they've they've grown significantly. And, you know, what this allows us to do is that no longer is where we live and work and where we produce food is mutually exclusive. One can actually exist on top of the other. Uh, So it's exciting to think about how the future city might be highly multifunctional, where you have you know, agricultural activity happening underground and you have, you know, people being productive above ground. You hinted at something I wanted to ask in terms of the economics. Yeah. You you mentioned, yes, there are underutilized assets like these real estate structures or parking lots, but that's one aspect of it. What about the economics of growing the greens? Yeah. Because you, you aren't, or in some cases you might be the end producer, but your goal is to allow other people to be producers, right, with your tech? Yeah, so we, we have two essential models. One is to sell the tech, and the other one is to sell the vegetables. So uh, in certain places, we run the model ourselves, like in Beijing. So we are selling the vegetables that we grow from the technology that, we op- that we've developed and we operate ourselves. And we sell those vegetables to, let's say, five-star hotels. So Weston, Shangri-La. Um, and the, the other model is to sell the tech. So we want to enable more organizations and individuals to be able to grow their own food locally. So it's almost like a, a farmer entrepreneur or yeah. the urban farmer. Right. And, and I think a lot of the misconception is that 
it's incredibly or potentially labor intense. Um, one of our container farms can produce about almost a thousand heads of produce a week. A week? Yeah. Um, it grows about five thousand, four to five thousand at any given time at full capacity, and it's. What's exciting is that we can do we can operate that farm. One person can operate that farm in under twelve hours a week, so you can do it part time, and and you can harvest all those thousand right, including the harvesting, the cleaning, the seeding, everything, all activities combined. You can do it comfortably within fifteen hours, and you know our, our trained operators can do it in under twelve. So, what's exciting is that the labor efficiency is incredibly high. Or if you want to have be entrepreneur, like you said, be like a farm entrepreneur, then it also allows you to have that level of freedom as well. And it's exciting when you see, what's exciting for us is when, when you see the reaction to the farm. And it's not just the fact that it's like this beautiful spaceship looking thing, like growing greens. It's actually, you can see people's imaginations really, and their creativity be activated. And, and, you know, and, the first thing that they'll ask is, well, if you can do this, surely you can do something else. And some of these, these you can do these something else have turned into actual competencies that we have now. So for example, if things are growing in water and we can control the environment, surely you should be able to control flavor and texture, which we can. So without adjusting the genetics of the seed, we can grow, we right now, we grow wheatgrass that's sweet for some of our customers. We grow arugula that's very spicy for our customers. We grow plants that are, have different unique textures for our customers. And is that based on nutrients? What are you adapting? So we can change the, the very cool way to explain this is we simulate four natural disasters in our farms. We simulate extreme darkness, floods, droughts, and high winds. And by manipulating these four things... You can get the genetics, you, you can get the seed, this, these plants to express different types of attributes. And really nature's done all the R&D, and you just have to figure out a way to activate different parts uh, of the plant to express these different types of things. And the great thing is that you can manipulate them in a combination that allows them to change taste and texture, but you can also do it in a way that makes the plants more nutritious. So you can activate the self-defense mechanism of the plant, and in doing so, they are more nutritious as well. So it's exciting to see how you can start tailoring. You don't have like a romaine lettuce. You can have a signature romaine lettuce that has certain qualities, maybe even certain shapes, certain aromas. Um, and to get especially individuals from the F&B world to, to walk in there to see this and saying, you know, I've always had trouble growing something or to procure something is an easy one. If we can get the seed, we can grow for them. But to, for them to say, you know, if you could, it seems like you can do these other things. Um, and to kind of be able to, to change the environment uh, in which the plants grow to really get them to, to fully express some of these things, it's very exciting to see the outcomes of these things. In terms of business model, going back to what you said, enabling other producers, what would that look like in theory? Can uh, just an entrepreneur approach Alaska Life and say, I'm interested in two containers or three containers? Yeah, so at the moment, we don't really do individuals. Okay. We do organizations. Okay. Just only because we don't have the capacity to service uh, a, a, a whole army of, of individuals. Um, so right now, we work with organizations and partners that are looking to deploy a fleet of farms. And what's the minimum for this fleet? So right now, we 
think of these fleets in increments of fours and fives only because that's the most labor-optimized numbers. So if an individual can operate a farm in 12 hours, if they have four containers, that's 48 hours a week of, of work. And so it's at the peak of the labor efficiency. And as our systems develop further, they'll be able to operate more. So we're, we're thinking that they can operate soon seven or eight containers by themselves a week. And at that point, you know, we'll be looking for organizations that are looking to, let's say, grow 250 kgs of produce every single day. And that would be about a container deployment of anywhere between 20 to 30, depending on what kind of vegetables varieties they want to grow. And so these are the kind of customers that we're in discussions with now in South Africa, in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, uh, and also parts of Southeast Asia and China. And, you know, these are customers that are in both the food processing world and the food retailing world. Some of them are just corporate clients that want to grow great food for their employees. Um, And it's really exciting to see how many passionate individuals and organizations exist and to hear their stories about how they feel the ag tech or even the food tech world can address some of the social, economic, and environmental imbalances or challenges that exist in their specific community. And it's, you know, honestly, starting out six in 2013, so six and a half years ago, you know, agri-tech was something that at least... It was fringe. It was, nobody talked about it. And it's exciting to see, and, and part of the reason nobody really talked about it, and people talk more even to this day about food tech, is that the closer you are to the, con- the consumer, which is food, so on the spectrum of, of the, the, the supply chain, agriculture is on the production side, on the processing side, and then the logistics side, and then food is like what we eat at a restaurant or what we buy at the supermarket. So food is the closest to the consumer and agriculture is everything that leads up to that food, either existing in a packaged form that you can buy or it shows up in a restaurant on a plate. And so everybody talks about food because that's typically what people associate where the margins are. If you're the closest person to the consumer, if you own the consumer, surely you're making the most profits. And this is turning out to not be true with, especially with a lot of delivery companies uh, or any of these cloud kitchens is that just because you're there, if you're subsidizing their their purchases, you know it doesn't matter. You know it doesn't matter how at what scale you're at, you're going to be unprofitable. And it's exciting to see how the shift is happening, where investments and interest is happening on the agritech side, on the production side, um, which is where traditionally a lot of the risk people thought existed, but also the lack of margins too. And so it's exciting how this huge pendulum shift, swift, the, the, the shift is happening, where investors, partners, customers, and even governments are really excited about the impact that agritech has to address everything from food and nutritional security um, to just basic access issues. So speaking of those uh, partners or customers who buy these fleets, what is the model you have with them? Do you just sell them the tech or the, the container and then say, good luck, and they can use it off the shelf, or is there a SaaS subscription? How, do, how does what, yeah? So what your... it really just depends on what the customer is looking for. But lo- they will most likely all fall into probably two categories. One is almost like a Hilton model. So essentially, somebody owns the infrastructure, we operate it for them, and then eventually we hand it off. So during the operational p- period, we would train their staff to eventually be able to operate it themselves. And so we are not the owner of the asset itself. So somebody owns the farms, but we would operate it to our standards. And during that time, we would also train the local team. 
And then the other side is that we would sell it and train it and they would immediately start taking over. Um, kind of given. So one's a transition period and one's. One, one is more like, I don't want to be a farmer. And the other one is, I'm depending on kind of how labor intense it is or how challenging it is, I'm prepared to be a farmer. And so with many of the real estate or the FMB customers that we have, the complexity of running their, their existing operations is so high that growing food and becoming a farmer is a huge hurdle for them. And so for these individuals, operating it for them is something that, that would be really helpful. And it would really lower their barrier of acquisition. And for some of our other customers, um, they're just they're really excited about the opportunity that this product has to not just teach them a new skill set, but for, it really unleashes whether it's kind of like an employee satisfaction aspect uh, or an educational aspect. They're really excited to kind of get their hands dirty on, on day one. And going back to the technology itself, how energy efficient or intense is this? Is this like hydroponics or what exactly are you guys Yeah, so doing? everything that we do is hydroponics, which means that we grow everything in the absence of soil. And because we're indoor, we grow everything in the absence of sunlight. And so everything is, is using LEDs. And so one of the core development aspects of what we do is to develop brand new LEDs that are optimized for the plants that we're growing. So... Now that we're growing everything from vine vegetables, like tomatoes and chilies and peppers, we had to develop a brand new LED that would allow us to grow these things most efficiently. And I think the exciting thing about agri-tech is that a lot of the components that make agri-tech possible are starting to mature. So LEDs are starting to mature, which means that they're becoming hyper-efficient and low-cost, things that allow the farm to be automated related to monitoring and sensors and these, you know, automation systems that exist or the components to make these systems are becoming significantly cheaper. So all the electronics that go into it and, you know, because of these things, it's making the energy intensity lower, uh, the cost of deployments lower. And, you know, for us, even in the past 12 months, we've reduced our energy intensity by 27%. And we think that's, you know, there's significant room to improve. And that's just through the technology improvements? Right. So that's just through developing better components, um, operating our farm in a different way. And so by improving the operational processes and also improving the hardware, but also improving the components, it allows us to do all these things. And it's really exciting to see how all these different components and industries that were not really ever associated with farming and as they're maturing it's unleashing all this potential opportunity uh, in, in an industry like agriculture. Um, and really our goal is to be able to create farms in the near future that are completely off-grid. So running on wind and solar and also using atmospheric water generators. So essentially taking water out of humidity, right, mm-hmm. out of humidity and to be able to create completely off-grid farms. And the challenge with that is right now, again, a lot of our things are driven by economics. Like we're not doing this for the vanity and we need to make sure that a sustainable business model exists. And in doing so, the more sustainable we want it to be by integrating solar and wind, the more, the, the worse our return on investment becomes at the moment. And what's great is that solar panels are becoming cheaper. Inverters are becoming cheaper. These, the, the efficiency of these, these renewables is increasing. And because of that, uh, we're getting closer and closer to be able to be close to let's say a hybrid car like a prius where we can run some of it on grid and some of it off grid and so it's really exciting to think about how the convergence again of 
new types of energy generation can make our farm significantly less uh, energy intensive. There was something I, I recalled that really stood out when I saw your TED talk. It was you hinted at something like fiber optics, looking into fiber optics. Yeah. I don't know if you're utilizing that, but just even exploring that idea is showing the maturity or the evolution of yes. alternatives. Or- I mean, in Japan, they're using lasers to grow rice, uh, which is another factor of 10 more energy efficient than LEDs. Um, fiber optics allows you to channel and certain types of fiber optics even allows you to channel the useful energy for the plant without bringing in the heat. So you don't have to cool it as much. Um, it's, it's really exciting to think about how so many different, it's exciting to, it's for the first time when you think about agriculture and thinking it can happen anywhere in your office space, in your living room, in your parking lot, you know, that any idle urban infrastructure can be converted into a farm. It's exciting to, to, when you can tell, when you tell that to somebody that is completely unrelated to farming, let's say somebody in the real estate industry or somebody in the culinary industry. It's, it's really exciting because when you take that restriction away of agriculture being able to happen anywhere at high efficiency, they have so many ideas about how they would improve it or how they would benefit from it. And so the more we talk about how smart homes are being developed, a lot of the technology that goes into that can also translate into making better farms. And, you know, the challenges of a server farm let's say for Amazon or for Google and the challenge that we have as an indoor farm, a lot of these things are actually related. And so to be able to understand how they manage temperature and humidity in these other places, how they manage dust and not pests, but really these potential pathogens and bacteria, these are all things that are very, very useful for us to understand as well. And, and to understand, to be able to see how agriculture for the first time, really for the first time is benefiting enormously from best practice from industries that never ever even you know intersected with agriculture is really exciting you wouldn't think oh server farm how they manage their cloud database right like how they do heat management how they do uh, entry exit protocols to ensure that you don't bring in um, certain types of of of, of dusts or, or or things that might damage the hardware but also that might be uh, dangerous to the employees. Um, you know, how do you manage humidity? How do you manage the efficiency of these things? How do you manage the electrical load so that you don't have peaks all at the same time? Like all these things allow, you know, even in our context an indoor farm be operated better too. And so to be able to look at so many different industries and their best practice and to internalize that is, is really exciting. And, you know, a lot of times, especially being in China, there's people talk about super apps. So, like, you have something like WeChat that does everything. Right. You can book your car with it. You can talk to your friends with it. You can transfer money. Right. You can buy food. You can order food from it, transfer money. You can do any, you can buy a plane ticket from it. You can do whatever you want on this app. Um, and agriculture to me is like a super aggregator of other industries. So, agriculture can be linked to everything from academics and education to space exploration to, um, you know, all the things related to your lifestyle. Um, you know, when people talk about how the penetration of certain products is 90%, you know, wherever humans exist, food exists. Like it's one of the few things, if you think about has a hundred percent penetration and it's very rare that you can name something that literally across the globe has a hundred percent penetration, not even shelter. Is there a hundred percent penetration? Clean water doesn't have a hundred percent penetration, but there are certain truths that exist. And one of the few things is about food and how that connects all of us, but also the, the impact of improving something like food production can have given 
how important it is. I mean, given that it really is the, the source of sustenance. And so, and one of the terrifying facts about that is that in, for example, in China where I am, there's, I would say, first of all, there's a mass migration happening into urban city centers and they're expecting about 250 million people to move to city centers. And that will create, is projected to create 37 megacities. Megacity is a population of over 10 million. And what's missing in that number of that 250 million that are moving is that there's about 400 million farmers in China, um, or let's say 500 million. And of the 1.5 billion, 500 million is a third. So if you take 250 million and you say a third of those people are farmers, just, or let's say even conservatively, uh, that, that, that 10% of those individuals are farmers. Just by natural migration, we will lose 25 million farmers just because they moved to the city, not because of death or disease, purely because of the movement of individuals from one location to another. And so whenever I hear about people talking about the airline industry or like we're going to have a shortage of 100,000 pilots or like 100,000 developers, uh, name me an industry that is going to lose 25 million workers in one country. And if you think about that across the entire globe, just by pure urbanization, the number of farmers that we will lose is staggering. And so we get a lot of questions about how the efficiency of our technology and then the lat- the improvements in labor that we have will lead to mass unemployment of farmers. That's already happening. That's going to happen. Right. And so it's not even an unemployment. It's just, in my opinion, no industry can benefit more from AI, machine learning, IoT, all of the, the buzzwords in the world. and can all, all come the, back to ag tech. Right. So it, the, the remaining individuals that are producing food need to be a thousand times more productive than they were before, just purely because the urbanization is going to happen between now and, let's say, 2050. And the amount of food that we need to produce is staggering in that time. In the past 10,000 years, we produced a certain amount of food. In the next 30 to 40 years, we need to produce twice that. It's, you know, the numbers are, are terrifying if you really think about it. And given the mass migration that's happening into the urban city centers, the amount of productivity that we need to drive out of the remaining individuals, you know, my, a lot of times when I go to conferences, I usually ask the crowd three questions. Two of them I care about most, what their response is. And one of those questions is, if you could, the first question is, do you care if your food is made by a robot? And depending on where I go, most people don't care. Uh, if you go, it's, it's, it's odd, but if you go into some places that are more affluent, they care more. They want it to be local and heirloom and artisan. I want to know what the chef did. Right. And, and so they have a very, very, they, they, they want to buy the story more than, and they care about the, the story when they buy the product. Um, but for many of the metropolitan places I go to, when I ask them if they care if the robot made it, they'll say no. And if you go to a place that has recently had a food scare, like a food um, safety outbreak, let's say in the States or in Japan or in China, they'll say that I would rather have a robot make my food because they'll have less incentive to cheat. My, I can guarantee that my food will be a certain quality if a robot makes it. Because it's standardized. Right. And then the second question I ask uh, is if you could maintain your current salary – whatever that is, if you're a corporate CEO and you're earning a million dollars, $10 million, you can maintain that $10 million. Would you then tomorrow 
for the rest of the, for the remainder of your career, become a farmer. And almost everybody says no. And it's interesting if you ask about these, if you, if you, based on the responses to these two questions, because a lot of times we have a lot of opinion as consumers of food about what agriculture should look like, how food should be made, how it should be processed, how it should be delivered to you. And we have a lot of opinions about how agriculture should run, but we don't identify in any way with how agriculture actually happens. We don't care if a robot makes it, and we, don't, we would never want to be a farmer. And yet we have such strong opinions about how agriculture should run. And so it kind of shows a lot of the bias that we have and also the kind of the distance that, you know, naturally if you're far away from something, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And so it's interesting how, you know, if how people answer these questions, it tells you a, a lot of, 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 about both the biases that exist, um, the stigmas that exist, and... And partly because of that, we do a lot of community engagement events so that we can get community members to kind of demystify the technology, but also to kind of inspire the next generation of food producers. And honestly, the only compliment that I remember in the past six years was when a child after one of these programs came up to to my team and he said, when I grow up, I want to be an urban farmer. You know, like to be able to inspire the next generation to really to address the challenges that will exist for their gen- well i mean that already kind of exist to be able to inspire the next generation if you give them the right tools to get a, a child to say yes this is something that i can pursue uh is very exciting because if you gave maybe especially given now like if you go to somebody like a, a a student in the middle of the city and you give them a shovel and you say you know good luck making food for the next generation like a lot of people are going to say say, no, I'm, you know, I'm going to work hard so I can be a lawyer so I can just go to the supermarket to buy it as opposed to saying, and so it's exciting where if you can create the right tool set and if you can create the right mindset that you can inspire the next generation to see this as a viable career. And one thing that I'm really excited about is that as the labor efficiency of our systems increases, the amount that we can pay each of our farmers increases exponentially. And I'm, Obviously, I'm hopeful that I will end my professional career at Alaska, that I will never have another job after this. But I'm hopeful also that by the time I retire, that a career in urban farming in the city, in one of our facilities, people will, they will be torn between taking a job as an urban farmer and a lawyer or a banker. And I'm hopeful that the salary will justify that, but also how rewarding educational the job can be and the progress in terms of career that you can make starting as an urban farmer. I'm, I'm hopeful that as the ecosystem develops, that that will be something that individuals graduating from college will be torn uh, between these decisions. Yeah, I think it kind of comes back to what you're hinting at. It, there's a disconnect. We typically go to a restaurant, majority of us are guilty of this, or or even we go to the supermarket, we grab, but we don't even consider yeah. what goes into that. But we have our opinions about it. Yeah. It it's, should be a certain way, but I have no idea what <laughs> what's actually going on or how difficult that is. It's interesting because food is linked to so many aspects, social aspects and cultural aspects. And so it's such an important thing. And and that that importance is associated specifically with food. Not it's and it's 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 less so with the 
process of production or processing or logistics. It really is about the last step. Like you might have a favorite recipe that your grandma makes that is like very, very local to that location. And, you know, every time you go back to your hometown and you have it, it tastes so much better. Right, right. And a lot of times we use the word agriculture and food interchangeably, but they are on the opposite side spectrums. And because of that, um, a lot of times the opinions that we have about food, we translate over into agriculture. And so what you're, what a lot of times I feel like people are expressing are their opinions about how their food should be, how their, uh, and the story of the food itself. And they place a lot of importance on the person, the last person to touch the food. Um, and they don't really place a lot of importance on the first person that touches the food. And what's exciting is that it, when we do these urban farming experience tours is that we get to give kids um, or individuals an opportunity to be close to the first person that touches your food and not necessarily the person that touches it last just before you consume it. Um, And also we can do a lot of things that are really exciting for us. Like in Dubai, we're doing an agri-therapy program. So essentially merging therapy with agriculture. And we have individuals that have cognitive disabilities that become urban farmers uh, every Wednesday Um, But it's really exciting to see how agriculture can be a very rewarding um, experience, but also both uh, engaging and uh, and, um, it's something that can contribute to more than just producing food. Speaking of the potential and also what you also talked about, this is something that is needed globally. It's universal to all of us, no matter where we are. Where have you guys expanded to or where are you deployed? Where can one discover your technologies and where are you going? I mean, a lot of our focus is emerging markets. So our focus is in China, the Middle East, in Southern Africa at the moment. Um, We've also done a project in Singapore, but quite small scale. And, you know, a lot of agri-tech companies exist in these hyper-developed markets, like in the U.S., in Western Europe, in Japan, and to a certain extent in Australia. And for us a lot of the excitement is in these emerging market countries. And part of it is the demographics. Part of it is the, the speed of growth and development, the, um, the high levels of literacy and education. And I think it's being, it's completely underserved. And a lot of the countries that we target, 50% of the population is under the age of 25. Some of them, 50% of the population is under the age of 19. And so if you think about investing in the future generation of both food producers, but also food consumers, these are natural places in which agricultural technology should thrive. And we want to be the first ones there. And so we are always on the lookout for incredible partners in, you know, across all these, all these markets. So whether it's in China or in the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Northern Africa, Southern Africa, you know, these are all places that can benefit from this technology. And what's really exciting is that the same product can have different benefits depending on the geography in which it's deployed. So a lot of people might use our indoor farms uh, because they have challenges with with food safety in certain geographies. In some places, it'll be because they have food security and nutritional security challenges. And in some places, it'll be resource scarcity, so they don't have enough water. Or the natural climate. Right. So it's exciting to see how the same technology can address multiple different types of both social and environmental challenges that exist across the world. And we want to deploy it in a way that has lower risk uh, and is much more localized, both in terms of business model, uh, but also in terms of 
like the daily cadence um, in these different locations. So the reason why we don't have these massive warehouses is part of partly because in the Middle East, the way in which retailers, wholesalers, and F&B outlets, the way they procure, the way they sign contracts is very different from America and Japan, where they might give you a 10-year offtake agreement saying anything that looks like grade A or lettuce, we will buy in perpetuity for the next, let's say, 12 years. So you can justify building a $50 million facility maybe out there. But in the Middle East or in, definitely in parts of Africa, it's very difficult to get that type of commitment. Um, both that level of, of understanding and trust may not exist, um, but also that just isn't the typical cadence of purchase. So a lot of FNB outlets in China will repurchase or restock, let's say, some of them, the most extreme ones, will restock every day. Some will do it once every two weeks. And with some of them, we are the first ones that they signed a multi-year agreement with. So we signed a three-year agreement with Mercedes, we signed a three-year, three-year, a two-year agreement with Shangri-La, but to get them to be comfortable that our technology will operate as advertised, and we will be able to deliver the quality and consistency that we are very confident we can deliver, it takes a little bit of. It almost sounds too good to be true, because of the quality of products that they get all the time, is it fluctuates so much. Um, so if you think about seasonality, they're throwing away 50% of their basil on arrival in the winter in Beijing, for example. And so to be able to guarantee the quality of basil throughout the year without changing the price for five years, this is something that they can't, it's very difficult for them to believe. Um, so what we try to do a lot of times is get individuals, you know, our partners and customers to come to our farm. You know, we want to let them know that, you know, we have, first of all, we have nothing to hide, uh, but also that there's a reason why we're very confident we can do these things. And you can showcase that disaster, the disaster or the stress you put the plant through triggers those flavorful yeah, experiences. Well, yeah, so it's, it's exciting because we can show the final outcome. So we can take the same seed stock and show them different flavor profiles that we might be able to create. Um, and in the Mercedes-Benz Cafe case, we were able to create a very sweet wheatgrass. So they can actually don't have to add anything. They can just kind of mix it. It's all natural. Right. And so it's exciting to see how, as you can manipulate these things, you can really tailor and customize the profile, uh, depending on the, the needs of both, right now at the moment, our business customers, but hopefully soon for individual consumers. What trends do you see in the agritech business over the next five years? I, I'm just, based off what you've said so far, I'm already starting to imagine these flavor profiles. There's so much potential in terms of yeah we, we wouldn't even think of before. Right now, we're there's a lot of things that we want to do um, on the R&D side. Very fun things with chefs. Um, a lot of things happen to are related to infusions. Are there things that we can do by manipulating the nutrients in the water content that can pass on into the plant? And we haven't really made much progress on this, but you know it's exciting to think that what can we make lettuce that tastes that, that has the aroma of a pineapple or, uh, some, you know, like that, like basil that has a hint of cinnamon. Still natural though. Right, right. Of course. So all we would do is put in natural extracts, for example, into the water solution and see how that translates into a different type of aroma or flavor, flavor profile in the final product that we would give to, to, to these chefs. And so that's one of the things that I said is about, about how, when you get a chef in, in there, they, they always say, well, surely if you're, using, if you're using these techniques to grow, first of all, changing the color of the plants is very easy. You can just add a food-grade color dye, and you can have monochrome. You know, if you have a, a trend around monochrome, you can have black lettuce yeah. that, that complements all the, 
black squidding things that you might be doing. So color is an easy one, but to be able to really create new experiences. So you might show them that it's a lettuce, but it happens to taste like a, a fruit uh, or have a different kind of aroma to be able to create these brand new experiences by showing them what they've been accustomed to seeing for a very long time. Um, from the culinary side, it's very exciting. And then from a technology side, to be able to create the data collection and data analytics platform that would allow us to be able to very scientifically understand the way in which we can manipulate these different types of disasters or different types of environmental parameters and have that turn into a very specific type of flavor profile is a, is a massive technological challenge. And so to be able to build that type of both hardware infrastructure, but also the software and data analytics platform. Um, and then eventually as that is developed to be able to then either open source it or make it available to your traditional greenhouses and field farms, this is, this becomes very exciting. There's something you said now about that, the culinary, when you bring in the chef, they might think like that. At the same time, once you're able to get to the personal side or an individual level, yeah. an entrepreneur might think entrepreneurial and say, you know what? I'm going to experiment and do golden lettuce. Yeah. That's going to be my niche. I'm going to brand it as yeah, so, my golden lettuce. So right now, there's a movement for uh, creating white strawberries, a very specific type of, of hybrid strawberries. That that's got. Japanese, right? There is. So there's a Japanese one, but also a Singaporean company has developed a special type of sapling that are optimized for indoor hydroponic production that are white. Um, so you can really create these tailored experiences um, that chefs would value, but also individual consumers would value. And I think one of the big challenges right now is a lot of the innovation that's going is purely or mostly because of economic reasons. They're in products that don't really address food security. They're in things like strawberries. These are like, those are expensive as well, right. the white strawberries. Right. These are like vanity products. Yeah. And these, you know, right now, you know, we look at Alaska Life looks at our development in three phases. And right now, to relate ourselves to Tesla, we would be at the we would be at the Roadster. Yeah, the Roadster, the vanity right. project right. will fund the right. Model Three. Right, and then eventually, you know, as you go to these more mass market products, it allows us to make the impact that we want to see. And so, not only in terms of the competence of the product itself or the technology itself, but also in terms of the types of things that we can grow. If we can grow calories effective, efficiently and cost effectively, then it allows us to be a solution for both refugee and, and and natural or even man-made disaster relief here on earth but it also allows us to be a part of the conversation for space exploration and so there's so many things about ag tech that as it matures and develops allows us to make the impact that we want to see and it's it's essentially it's it's never ending uh which is very exciting i just want to wrap up about alaska life specifically on something you hinted at before that there was this thought of the unbundling of the software and the hardware yep but what I want to ask is, do you see potentially in the future a scenario where right now we're talking about these climate-controlled microclimates indoor containers? Yep. Could some of your technology, your hardware, the things you're doing, R&D, you're developing, could you potentially unbundle that for traditional farming? Or unbund like maybe it might be a sensor, it might be, I don't know what it might be, but do you see a scenario where you might even unbundle beyond the software and hardware and actually unbundle pieces of your hardware into different scenarios yeah i think what's exciting is being in china i get to be exposed to business models that don't exist anywhere else one of the business models that is recently taking hold is hardware is becoming free not just software 
So an example would be a free uh, refrigerator. And you can get a free refrigerator as long as you sign up to that company's e-commerce platform. Buy your groceries. Groceries through the e-commerce platform. And in doing so, you get the free refrigerator, essentially. And so this idea that not just software can be, as a service, can be free, but also that hardware can also be free, is something that is is taking shape in China, which is very exciting. And a lot of times when you think about these new business models, all it requires is to find a different type of partner that would enable that model to exist. And for some reason, when it comes to agriculture, and I talk about these free models for both hardware and software, there's a lot of skepticism. And they say, well, surely if it has value, you should charge for it. And usually what I'll ask after they say something, or you know, if, if, if some of these conversations come up, is I would say, on your smartphone today, right now, how many applications do you pay for? And usually the answer is zero. And so they, around the world, we are already accustomed to the idea that the direct beneficiary of a service doesn't have to pay for it. It could be ad-sponsored uh, or it could be paid for in a, in a different way. And for some reason, when we apply that same logic to new industries, let's say, for example, in, in agriculture, then that idea um, becomes something almost close to science fiction, like it couldn't possibly exist. And so what's exciting is that you know, Aleska's vision is to democratize these things, but Aleska's has a lot of moonshots. And one of our moonshots is free food. So is there a model in which we could produce food at a high enough level of efficiency and quality where we could provide universal basic access to food, much like we do for healthcare and, and, and education? And again, that all that requires is for us to find the right partners that would enable that to happen and also for our technology to mature in a way where we could do it profitably. And for some reason, when I talk about that, um, a lot of people worry that, well, if you made food free, why would people work ever again? Like if your most basic necessities are met, what is the incentive for employment? And, you know, in that question itself is the stigma and the bias of how people engage with food, but also how people engage with agriculture. Because if you ask that person, okay, I'll make your food free for your entire family for the rest of your life, would you quit your job tomorrow? They would say no. They would say, work for me is a different source of both enjoyment, education, and fulfillment. And even if food was free tomorrow, I would still work because I don't work so that I can eat. And unfortunately, when, you know, when, especially when we are in abundance of things like food, for example, then we feel like we have a different motivating factor bef- for the actions that we take. And we don't apply that same logic to individuals that might be of a different income class. Yeah. And so it's as having had the opportunity to kind of advocate, not for the food side, but for the agriculture side, it's really interesting to, to see why there is this disconnect. Like, why is it that these stigmas exist? Why are they so ingrained in, in, in our, in our, you know, in our psyche, why is it that we still romanticize a farmer with a, with a shovel wearing overalls and a hat in nature? Like, why is it that that image is so heavily ingrained? Um, and I feel like a lot of that has also to do with gender bias as well. So the books that we grow up with, um, that, you know, I have a young child now and, and he's grown up around books around bugs and cars and, and, and a lot of his toys are these things. And I, I always wonder if I had a daughter, would 
I have bought the same books for her? Would I be giving her, you know, toys that are trucks? Would I be giving her reading books to her that are about bugs? And, you know, a lot of times our ideas are so ingrained from such a young age that our, a lot of our decisions are taken away from us without us even knowing. And especially when it comes to farming and the, I, I feel like any parent today, if their child told them that when they grow up, they want to be a farmer, they would be terrified. They would think that they would live a life of poverty and, and hardship. And what's really exciting is when I, when we can take the child and also the parent to come into our farm and see this thing that it's, they can see how not only is the experience something that is highly educational for the child, but it's something that they, that reassures them that this is not a job, but it could be a career. Um, and we have to package in a way both in terms of the compensation, but also in terms of the safety and accessibility of these things where they don't feel like they're making a trade off. Like they could have a better life if they did something else. Um, that they feel like this is actually something that that would be highly valuable and meaningful for their child. What you just said, it makes me think about as humans, we always tend to strive for better. Yeah. So like you said, if I gave you all the food you would need, you and your family would need, would you quit your job? Right. No, because we always want more or or we we will strive for more, whether it's through knowledge, through that work experience, or even just having more. Yeah. So when we've, you know, fill one more tier in the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we'll go on to the next ones. Right. And this debate also exists within universal basic income. The thought of, well, if you gave people money, no one would work. Yeah. That's never happened. Yeah. So like, I think what's exciting is so individuals, and this is just kind of a theory and maybe I, I, am sure this has been published. I just haven't come across the literature, but individuals spend money in three, primarily three locations. So they spend money in mind, body, and soul. So the mind, things related to education, it's essentially a blank check. If your child wants to go to a really expensive university, parents will pay for it. Body is related to your health um, or maybe to your beauty. And so whether it's cosmetics or whether it's things related to your healthcare, your general healthcare, you'll spend, it's not, it's essentially like a blank check. And then your soul is things related, let's say, to philanthropy or things that you care about, your causes. These are things that you will donate, maybe not so much of your money, but maybe your time. So this is just as valuable. And these are also the three places that are recession-proof. So just because the economy is bad, you're not going to buy worse makeup. And if you get into Stanford University, you're still going to try to figure out a way to pay for it. And so you know, what's exciting about food and agriculture is that it's one of the most recession-proof things for these reasons. Because it touches... Essentially, it touches one of these three triangles, and it's 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 interesting to see how you know when you can package all of the when you can actually smash the supply chain into one location, like literally agriculture and food is happening in the same location, and you can experience both the first person and the last person that touches your food is the same person. And it's also in a place where you can drive five minutes or 10 minutes or even walk down the street and go see it. When you can really change that perspective or that idea that they had about what is farming, it's, it's really exciting to see the transformation and how receptive people become to these things. We, we advertised our job last year for one to hire one grow operator within a week, but I want to say even a significantly shorter period of time, we had 300 applications. And so very quickly, 
this notion that agriculture is practiced by a certain individual. Um, we had a lot of applications from engineers. Um, we had it from, um, from the service industry. We had it from all different types of industries, all different types of backgrounds, educational backgrounds included. But it's really exciting to see how universal and how acceptable these things are becoming, where it's almost, you know, in the age of Instagram, like our farm is like one of the most beautiful places to be. Yeah. Because you want to see it, you want to showcase it. Yeah, yeah. You, none of your friends can take photos like they can in our farm, for sure. I think what you're also hinting at is kind of what you just said right now. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's a perception thing. You said grow operator. You're yeah. called the urban farmer. Yeah, so we don't, we don't, we don't ever use the word farm. Part of it because of the, the stigma. So yeah. all the people that work in our in, in you know in our facilities, you know we refer to them as grow operators, and so. But that plays a role towards that future that you're saying that right. people want to sure. follow career in growth operator grow right. operation. So it's it's essentially you can go from a grow if you say farmer it's like what is the next step, but if you say grow operator they can become a grow manager, and then they can you can see the progression that they can go through a career in their track. career right. And if you say that they're a farmer. You know, it kind of starts and ends there, but also it comes with a lot of the stigma um, of of being associated with the production of food. And you know, a lot of the individuals that are that we work with, especially like even in Beijing, they have master's degree. Like they are as professional as they come in any field that they decide to choose to work in, and they happen to be growing food. And so, you know, it's it's their level of education, their 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 really quickly the what it means to be producing food um will very very quickly change and it's exciting to be a small contributing factor of changing the stigma around food when people can see something you know so high tech in their mind um to be operated so easily and elegantly now i want to slightly move away from alaska but not fully one thing if one looks up alaska life yeah You'll notice you guys went through multiple accelerators. Yeah. I mean, a lot. I, I know you through the Dubai Future Accelerator, but that's just one. You yeah. went through Stanford's Startup. StartX. Yeah. And if you I don't want to go through each program, but what benefits did you get out of these programs? Or you obviously noticed something that worked and you went to the next one and the next one. Yeah. So, so the accelerators that we were part of um, fall into two categories. One category is agricultural industry-focused accelerators. So the Alltech Pierce Lions Accelerator or Bits and Bytes in Shanghai. These are food and ag tech-focused accelerators. So they are industry-specific, and they provide us with very specific types of advice because they understand the industry well. And then there's like the more generalist accelerators. So DFA is industry-agnostic, and the unreasonable impact is also industry-agnostic. And all they're trying to do is to provide you with the right tool sets to be better managers, to be better tech developers, to be to have a more defensible business model. And they're more generalist in terms of the advice that they can provide, but they come with, uh, because they're more generalist, they are able to have mentors that are significantly more experienced sometimes. Because if you say an agricultural industry-focused accelerator having an agricultural, like, entrepreneurial background like how many people have a background of 20 years in the ag tech space for example and very few so the great thing is to kind of have the balance of both and what's interesting is that dfa was the first accelerator that we were part of and the last one was the stanford startx and 
there are things that I learned in Stanford Sardex that I had never heard of before that were the mindset is to think of something in a certain way is transformative to operating our business and being more successful, whether that's raising money or just whether it is how we assess what types of products that we invest our time and money into and to create these types of metrics that better quantify or allow me to better understand what is a good and bad investment to make um, to improve our product or to reach new markets and geographies. And so, you know, I think the, at the beginning, I really, because it was the first one, like DFA, I felt I couldn't take advantage of all the resources that they offer. Um, having said that, coming back to Dubai so often and the support of DFA has allowed me to benefit significantly more over time than in the first three months. And, you know, what's incredible is that the more in time I invested here, the more support that they're, that they're providing. So it's like the alumni support. Or, right. And so yeah. a lot of the media that we have here is, is introductions through DFA. And, you know, to, to have that credibility, to be able to say that we were one of the few companies selected uh, into the DFA program or into the Unreasonable Impact program or to be the start Stanford StartX program, to be one of the few companies that were that met a threshold to be included you know it's very important especially for an industry as new and as fringe as at the time as agricultural technology for people to be able to say surely this is a thing if these programs have endorsed them essentially is very important for investors for customers for partners to be able to point to something that people recognize and say this is something that you know, we were good enough for this. Um, so besides all the support, whether it's on the media side or cu- introductions to customers, partners, investors, besides all these these benefits that, you know, all of our programs provide for us, even to this day, you know, to be able to go into a discussion and saying, and to be able to point to highly visible and highly respected programs and saying, we were in cohort one or we were a part of these programs, uh, it's almost like to be, if you're, the minute you say you're a part of Y Combinator, people kind of listen a little bit differently. They're like, oh, uh, you're a part of YC. Um, you know, so it's, and the programs that we are a part of on the industry side and also on the generalist side, they provide us with, they give us that level of, we can deflect a lot of questions um, about the credibility of our company, the technology, and our industry having been through some of these programs. Because they've kind of done due diligence on you or right. you, so, that you were, you went through it. And, right, right. So it's like we can kind of like skip a lot of the, the early kind of introductory questions or kind of their, their, the, some of the, the things that they might be worried about. Yeah. Um, just to be able to say, oh, yeah, we went through these programs. This is the outcome of the programs, and this is kind of the follow-ups that we've had. You know, we can show material progress and development through these phases. And so um, – you know, in terms of publicity, all of them have provided incredible publicity for us, but also the credibility is something, you know, the psychological aspect of it is, is very valuable for us as well. So we'll move on to our rapid fire questions. Short, long answer up to you. Oh God, There's not many. It's just, <laughs> do you have a favorite documentary? Favorite documentary? Wow. Honestly, it, the, the past six and a half years, I've watched only two TV shows from start to start to be, beginning like TV to end. show episodes. No TV sh- TV like the series, and most of these series are like only five episodes. Like the most recent one that I loved was was Chernobyl, but I think 
for me, it's a lot of questions that I, so one of the questions that I received recently was, what is my favorite book? So we were going to ask if there was a book you were going to gift to people. So maybe that's the same. Yeah. Um, just to clarify, you don't have a favorite doc favorite documentary honestly all my favorite documentaries or a lot of these kind of tv series that i loved um are related to nature and so whether it's uh planet earth uh or any of these things like the documentaries that are, that show the beauty of the planet in all of its all of its glory i love so pretty much we'll put you down as attenborough yeah so david attenborough i love um and really kind of these human stories um i love and the great thing is being part of the world economic forum as, as a tech pioneer you know, I get to meet people that some of the, some of these individuals, you know, have incredible stories and they're doing incredible things. And it's truly inspirational to kind of be like in the same room. We're not like the same company yet. Like I can't call them my peers or my colleagues, but to to be inspired by by these individuals is uh, is incredible. Um, the reason I love a lot of these nature things is because you know, humans are, I, th- I feel like a lot of our biases towards things that we define as beautiful or cute. But the great thing about these, these documentaries is that they show nature as, as it is. And so it provides us a glimpse into things that we may never be, have an opportunity to be exposed to purely because it doesn't meet our aesthetic biases or, or, um, our access uh, in general. Okay. So we'll move on to the book. What was the answer you gave last time to this question? Well, somebody asked me, the question that I was asked specifically was like, is there a startup book or is there a book on ag tech that I recommend? And my response was that I hate books. I have, I, I think maybe in my infinite, what about audiobooks? I think in my infinite impatience, I love to just launch into things. I read an enormous amount of things every day, whether it's on Quora or whether it's on business insider um, or it's on Bloomberg, any of these things. But and I read enormously, but I read in these like five, 10 minute yeah, increments. Chunks, yeah. uh, and then I read them throughout the day. So in total, I feel like I read, I, I spend my half my day reading, but it isn't kind of wrapped up in a, in a, in a single book. Um, having said that, like, again, I'm, I used to love books that were like in my early childhood, things like goosebumps, but, and then I moved on to like star Wars, but now more and more the stories that I love are are nonfiction. They're really stories about. Does one come to mind? I mean, even the movies that I love today. I, I most most recently I saw 1917, but like to to see how these these true stories. Well, that was pretty intense. 1917, right. the one shots and all. right, <laughs> to kind of like based on these true stories, how individuals are overcoming adversity um, is is very inspiring. But it's also as an entrepreneur, it's. It's also very relevant for me. And, you know, I, it's interesting when I see how they tell their stories, it also kind of provides me with an opportunity to articulate better my own story as well. And, yeah, so I, I love these stories of, that are based on, on kind of like a lot of this factual history. All right, we'll move on. You're familiar with Dubai now. We have this main highway, the Sheikh yep. Zayed Road. Yep. If we could give you a billboard to say something to people. <laughs> Again, not to promote Alaska Life, just something for you to tell the people who are coming for Expo 2020. That's a lot of people. Wow. I feel like right now Alaska Life... So somebody asked me how I would describe my job. 
And I told them that, or they said, what is your job title um, besides this founder and CEO stuff? Like, what is the most descriptive way you can describe your job? And I told them that it would be Bible salesman. And I feel you like... people to become evangelists for you? Yeah, so it's essentially like the Church of Alaska and the, you know, the vision of the company to democratize access to fresh food. This is essentially... Uh, our mantra. This is a, the, this is the vision of the of the of the church, and my goal is to create to ex, to really build the community that would make this church the most either credible or respected or the biggest in any one community, city, country, region, or across the globe. And so, I feel like my job is to be able to create more believers, and whatever that means. So it could be that. In believers as in people are now converted and so they will buy more locally uh, or they're converted and so now they feel like being an urban farmer is a career option for them or that they have certain skill sets um, that are that they feel like they can apply to the agriculture industry as opposed to working at Facebook or Amazon or Google and so to be able to find individuals that either want to work with us or that want to invest in us or that want to you know be um, a more responsible uh, or conscious consumer these are all things that I feel, especially as the CEO and as the founder of the company, that I need to be able to articulate very well. Um, so what goes on the billboard? <laughs> I was gonna say I was gonna say farming is sexy, but I thought you want to move away from the word farming. Yeah, the the problem is that the grow the 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 more that I realize, especially when I come when it comes to communication, especially at the not at the corporate level, not the investor level, but at the consumer level, is that. At the household level, there are certain words that are associated or that are easy to understand. Yeah. I mean, you think of farm to fork. Like that, it's a sure. tagline. It's a... Yeah, it's... I, I would love to be able to put up a picture of, of one of our farms. I think a lot of my presentations are highly visual. And the reason for that is it's very difficult to describe what 5,000 plants growing at in, in like essentially this... in. 20 something square meters of space. It's very difficult to explain that to somebody. Yeah. Like I don't have the literary descript. I don't have the vocabulary to be able to explain that to somebody in a way that where they can be awed by it. Well, it's uh, a picture says a thousand. Words, sure. So. And, and really the great thing about the DFA is one of the advice that has stuck with me since cohort one was I was asked, what was it about, your presentation that convinced individuals to invest in your company uh, was one of the questions I was asked. And I gave a very, very convoluted response to that. And essentially what it came down to after a lot of kind of like honing down from the mentor was that it became clear that anybody that visited the farm invested in the company. So anybody that expressed interest in investing that visited the farm in Beijing, all of them invested. So it became my goal to be able to create that same experience of walking into the farm to individuals that cannot walk into the farm. And that so it's led, a visual story. Right. So that led us to creating augmented reality programs where we could showcase how some of our things grow um, in, in a very cool medium. It also created we also created a virtual reality um, uh, essentially we created a, a virtual reality game with Mercedes Benz where 
we created this game where we hit a bunch of their cars inside of our inside of our farm, indoor farm, and you had to find all of the the different cars that are hidden there or the number of cars. But essentially, just finding very very different unique ways to communicate and to create that magic. So your sales deck or pitch deck was VR and AR enabled. Yeah. So so one of the things that we did was we I literally walked around with a VR goggle, like literally a VR goggle, um, and I just stuck my Samsung phone in there, and I would project a VR of the farm. And so sometimes it was a camera and I would say, hey, this is the link. You can see into the farm whenever you want. They would see operating. They would see it growing. They see all these amazing things. And so it was kind of like a, a way for them to not only just kind of see. Kind of like a live feed right. effect or feel. Um, and then the other thing was to just have them be smack in the middle of the farm. Like literally look around and be like, this is insane. Like you have. So many plants. So right. many things going on. So, so much variety. It's so clean. It's so beautiful. And to be able to create that magic in a way that they they otherwise couldn't understand but if they taste it it's game over like a lot of people ask you know because it's hydroponics and it's it's grown in water in the absence of soil and sunlight does it surely doesn't taste the same and honestly all i can say is just please come visit the farm like we are very confident in the quality of the product because we are advised by people that are very particular about how things should or shouldn't be um that they're you know, currently either foraging in the forest or they're buying from the market. Um, so, yeah. Going back to the theme of Expo 2020, just eight months away, or actually beyond that, UAE or Dubai specifically is known for doing moonshots in a yeah. way, like a city level moonshots. Yeah. If there was one moonshot, they came to you, Stuart, please tell us what should we pursue next? It would be to, to grow food on Mars. It so would, what you kind of said earlier, agri-tech in space. space tech yeah. or agri-tech so, for space. Yeah, so colonizing the moon and they need a, a food, produ- producing, food production solution there or colonizing Mars. You know, Dubai has announced that they want to create a, um, a Dubai sister city, essentially a, a second clo- a, a clone of Dubai on Mars um, 100 years from now. And in 2117, I think, they want to have a, a Dubai on Mars. But, you know, there's there's nothing that inspires the imagination quite like when you can mix something as as everyday as food and agriculture with something as far away as space um and the exciting thing about it is that the there are yeah it's really exciting to think that from six and a half years ago where i didn't know anything about agriculture to today to be able to present to be able to say maybe we have a solution to make that possible in six years is very exciting. Um, and at least kind of based on that, one thing that I've learned being an entrepreneur is that you can never like effort will always be more valuable than talent. So you'd be 97 years ahead of schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but that would be a really exciting moonshot. It it's, it's a, a very exciting challenge to tackle. I think the criticism there is when a lot of people look into space, they say, why would you invest in space when there's so many problems on Earth? And if you think about a lot of the technologies that are developed to enable something like growing food in space, if you can do it out there, 
Exactly. If you can do it there, you can, it's earth is a much more hospitable place to do these things. And so whatever it is that you've developed to make that possible in such an inhospitable location can then directly translate into a much, much more viable and a significantly more efficient product here on earth. And so it's exciting to think about how R and D for something so far away can be significantly a huge contributor to something here on earth. All right, let's start wrapping up. Do you have any, let's say last takeaways you would like our listeners, if you could summarize something, words of wisdom, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> yeah. Um, words of wisdom. I, I think, I mean, we talked a little bit about this before um, and, and when we were talking about the TED Talk, but, you know, from when I went from banking to, you know, connecting the dots backwards to me makes a lot of logical sense to be able to look back and saying, oh, I'm here now, before that I was at Dell, before that I was in banking, before that I was at UCLA studying politics. Like, it's very easy for me to understand how natural the progression was between each of these seemingly very, very disconnected things. And, you know, so the banker in me is very excited about how the ag industry or the entire supply chain, if you take everything from agriculture all the way to food, and you aggregate all that, it's, it's essentially about a third of the entire global economy. So the banker in me is very excited about the market size and opportunity. You know, and the side of me that's, that's more uh, focused on, this, on social aspects and environmental aspects, you know, agriculture is a massive consumer of, of both resources, it's also a massive polluter as well. And to be able to create solutions that would address some of the major social and environmental problems that happen by developing or investing in the agricultural technology industry is very exciting. And you know, when, when these two explanations are not sufficient for individuals um, as to why I'm in this industry, um, you know, we were talking about this before, but I, I, re- I read an article about how your name, particularly last names for men and first names for women, uh, can have a huge impact on your choice of career. And, you know, right now building indoor vertical farms, especially urban farms. Our farms compared to your average greenhouse or field farms is significantly smaller. They're very, very compact, small farms. And it's interesting, you know, and this is a crazy coincidence is that my last name in Japanese, the characters translate directly into small farm. It's actually the same in Chinese too, but the two characters translate directly into what it is that I'm doing today is just this unbelievable coincidence um it's full circle yeah and so it's for me like when those two things don't happen like all i can say is like this is fate like i'm i'm doing exactly what i'm what i was born to do um there's just no other way to explain what it is that i'm doing and you know going back to the thing i said about that effort always beats talent you know if i was to give any advice to an entrepreneur it would be that if you work hard And if you care enough, I mean, you have to be the person that cares about this the most, but if you can kind of mix that hard work and that care, somebody that has significantly more talent than you that are lacking in these two areas will never outperform you. You know, if you think about the world's preeminent space exploration engineer, they're probably smarter than Elon Musk and same with electrical, uh, electric cars and you know, if you care enough, if you're willing to risk so much, then eventually people start caring too. 
but you can't be the one that cares less and you can't be the one that works less. Um, one of the retreats that I went to, I met, uh, the early producer of, of Jay-Z. So I met, uh, I met, uh, Russell Simmons and he, he's of, he's very, I guess, spiritual now. I wouldn't say he's religious, um, but he's very spiritual and he talked about fate a lot. And so I said, you know, isn't it kind of like a, like a, a cop out to say that you have, that you are successful because of fate, that things are going to happen because they were meant to be like, that sounds like the ultimate excuse to not do anything, but also, uh, to never give credit where it's due. And one thing that he said that I'll never forget is he said, I never said that just because it's fate that you just suddenly end up somewhere. He says he prays a lot. And by praying a lot, he works a lot. He says, prayer, that, that work is my prayer. And I pray harder than anybody else. And so for me, it's the same. I work, I pray harder than anybody else, by which I mean I work a lot harder than anybody else. I, the only promise I've ever made to an investor is that I will never be outworked. And that's kind of like how important what we're doing at Alaska Life is to me. And honestly, given the challenges of ag tech and the opportunity for impact to devote six years of potentially the prime of my career and my ability to, you know, to my, my past experiences and talent, you know, there's honestly nothing better that I can think of having spent those past six years. You know, I, it's significantly better than spending it in banking. Um, it's better than spending it at Dell. I feel like a lot of the more traditional career choices you can always go back to. And there are certain things that are just, you have to do them now. And I travel with the same urgency that I work. So I travel to places that will not look the same 10 years from now. And with ag tech and with Alaska, I'm doing something that I know I can't do 10 years from now uh, in the same form. And so I'm, I'm really, I feel blessed that I found something that I can pour all of my energy and all my passion into. And that, having survived some of the rocky road to get here that I have an opportunity to be able to convey a lot of these things to, uh, to individuals that, that I may never meet uh, in person, but to be able to communicate them, um, through some of the, the interviews that we do, uh, or through some of the publications or even some of the Ted talks that, that I've done to be able to reach individuals and have somebody explain to, you know, to, to share their story about how this is meaningful to them, um, is, you know, is, is both humbling and it's very, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I find it interesting. You're saying it's a, in a way it's fate. Like you, you were destined to do this and let, to, let's say continue on the Japanese theme. It's almost like you found your ikigai. Yeah. Th- this is something you're passionate about. Yeah. There is a purpose to what you're doing. Others see value in what you're doing and you kind of, you're at the right place. Yeah. I, I recently saw a video, um, at, it was recently published from the, uh, Adrian Horowitz, um, they had kind of like a, a huge like investor, not just an investor, but kind of like a, like a demo thing. Um, and one of the, the talks was about instead of product market fit and business model market fit, they were talking about product zeitgeist fit. And they're saying that there are industries that are less efficient than what is currently available. And, you know, the product is inferior. It's, let's say, more expensive, less convenient. And yet people can't help themselves but to support it or buy it or to use it. And so the, exist- the, the examples that they gave was around, let's say, um, like, like plant-based meats. 
They don't taste as good. They're more expensive. Um, but people can't help but line up at Burger King and buy them, for example. And this is about timing. So you happen to be at the right place at the right time, and this, mu- this movement is happening. And same with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. It's at the collapse of the financial system in 2008 that really Bitcoin started becoming something that was serious. And so as these, these economic models are, are shifting and as these social um, and cultural shifts are happening, there are opportunities for new technology to be adopted. And so you know, with agri-tech, our products are more expensive there are less cons- there are less variety, less convenient to purchase, um, but there's a, there's a huge movement, and media want to help us, um, investors want to help us, people want to join our company, and really six years ago when we started, it wasn't the case, and now six years later, it's really exciting that we're at a point where the product zeitgeist fit this thing for ag tech, especially you know really on the ag side. Not on the food side, because delivery with Uber Eats, like a lot of these things existed on the food side, but really on the ag tech side that this is, it's having its moment. Um, And so it's, you know, to have gotten to this point is, is incredible. And to have the, I always feel guilty that I'm the one standing in front of, let's say a group of, of a group of audience members presenting and then getting applause when I don't build the tech anymore. You know, all I have to do is go sell Bibles. And a lot of the hard work happens in the shadows where my team was working hard, even through some of these these challenges that are happening in China right now, or with the the cultural differences, the language barriers that exist, they're working hard so that I have an opportunity to focus on on selling Bibles. Um, and so it's it's incredible that, you know, from nothing can come a lot of these things. On the flip side of what you just said, there's a TED Talk by... Bill Gross from Idealab, and what he looked at is why startups fail. Yeah, and it comes back to what you just said: the zeitgeist, the moment. Yeah. So you might have the tech, you might have the team, you might have everything. Yeah. The market moment. Yeah. The, the so timing Instagram is off. Is launched with the iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I think the 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 thing to take away from some of that is that sometimes things just are not meant to be. Like sometimes, you know, like the personal computer, like. With, with Larry Ellison, some of the technologies that existed around like like laptops, for example, have existed significantly earlier than they actually came out, but it was just too early. And, you know, with, with consumers being used to virtual keyboards now, it allows you to, uh, to provide them with a better user experience around products that have existed. Um, and that essentially killed BlackBerry and killed a lot of legacy industries. And so... You know, the the timing aspect is very important and, you know, it just comes down to kind of a, a lot of like stars have to align. And one of the, the, the accelerator programs that, that we went through, Unreasonable Impact, um, they, I learned a concept called constellating uh, in that program. To get the stars to align for you? No, no. So it's essentially... When you do these research and development projects, there's a lot of key learnings that come out of it. So the project in the end, by whatever KPI or standards that you had set for yourself at the beginning, you may have temporarily failed on that project. You, didn't pro- you couldn't achieve the KPIs that you had set out. You couldn't build a product that you were hoping to build. But there are a lot of things that you might have learned along the way. And if you bundle some of these key learnings together, and then you, 
that bundle might allow you to create something potentially better than what you were hoping to build. And so the analogy there is essentially, if you connected every star in the sky, you would have a giant spider web and it would, it would just be a mess. But if you connect the right stars, then you get an image. From the image, you get a story. From the story, you get mythology. From the mythology, you get a religion. And so you have to connect the right dots in order to be able to create religion. And so a lot of times we talk about connecting dots, but the whole idea of constellating is to connect the right dots, to be able to create that image, that, that initial image that will then lead into whatever else comes after it, whether it's mythology or, or religion, to be able to create, to, to have the genesis moment where you create that image is very important. And so a lot of times what I try to focus on, and the reason why I participate in a lot of these events or even travel as much as I do, is to understand, to try to contextualize our key learnings. It's very difficult. You really can't, you know, a lot of people idolize how startups back in the day created these revolutions from a garage. And today, things are so much more complex and, you know, and challenging that no longer can you just be hiding in your garage and create something life-changing. Like these things just don't happen anymore. And so, you know, at the beginning as an entrepreneur, a lot of it is paranoia. You feel like the more you communicate your idea, the more chance it'll be ripped off. And what I've learned now is that the more information that I can provide, the more that I can share, the more opportunity there is for a partnership to be formed, for a learning to happen. Uh, or for me to be able to contextualize what it is that we've either failed on, that we can actually, if we tweak one thing, we can do something else with it. Um, to be able to understand a lot of these things, it requires me to constantly look out of, you know, to look to look outside. Um, and then to be able to create these constellations from the things that we've learned, from the networks that we have, from the products that, we, that are existing, from the customers that we have, to be able to create these constellations um, becomes very important for us. Well, this has been really great. Before we go, where can listeners go to learn more about Alaska Life? Maybe about you. That that talk, we'll put the link. Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, right now, we're we would love to build up our online community. Um, you know, talking to investors and customers and partners is is great. But for us, we just want to create a passionate community of individuals that see agritech as a way to address some of the social and environmental challenges that might exist in their, in their community. And so for us, you know, whether it's on our Facebook page, um, or whether it's some of the things that we'll start uploading on our website, uh, it's an opportunity hopefully for us to be a little bit more transparent about not only the products that we're developing, but also the kind of communities that we're trying to build. Uh, and right now we're trying to build really these communities here in Dubai, uh, soon in Cape town, we're building this in, in Beijing, uh, and then as we kind of expand to, to different regions in the Middle East, we'll try to find as many ways as possible to have more of these, these communities uh, to pop up uh, so that it becomes a little bit more accessible for people to join these things offline as well. Um, but yeah, it's, for, me the, for me, if at the end of my career at Alaska, if I get to be the corporate social responsibility officer of the company, I would be in heaven. Because to be able to evangelize the company, but also to be able to engage with this community that we're trying to build online is 
at the very beginning, product development is really exciting. It's really fun. To this day, for me, it's really fun to be able to take an idea that you have and have that turn into a product, especially because we are hardware-centric at the moment. To be able to see that turn into a physical product that you can touch and see and it starts moving and things start growing, it's very exciting. But to be able to be on the more on the social responsibility side, and especially because agriculture is so intertwined with a lot of the, the challenges that we, we see today. Um, you know, I would just be in heaven and, you know, this starts out by being able to build this community so that we can share the articles that, that we think, um, are worth taking a look at or share some of, uh, the great events that we're going to be organizing going forward. Um, we would love to have them kind of find us on our website and on, on, on our Facebook page, uh, and to join us offline. Are you capturing like, is there a newsletter? Is there something to capture them when they come to your site? Or um, you need to do that? <laughs> yeah. I think the Facebook page is the easiest thing. They okay. can see a lot of the, the stuff. Um, what we try to do more and more is we're trying to find um, directly work with schools uh, or directly work with organizations to have these events. Um, we have events that are catered towards corporate clients. So we've done projects with Mercedes-Benz. Like CSR. Uh, it really is like innovation. It's like... Um, we work with organizations like Leaders Quest where they have the senior leadership team of Mercedes-Benz experience totally different industries to kind of kind of like get them to be more creative sometimes. And um, so we have things that are more catered towards corporates, uh, but we also have things that are catered towards uh, with, you know, like a younger crowd, um, elementary school students. And we love to kind of have them take some of the things that they learned about, about plants and biology and chemistry and physics and then see how all these things play out in this tiny little, this farm uh, that's down the street from them. So, you know, we love to kind of have, you know, really there is no restriction on age. Um, you know, we want to have as many people come through as, as possible. Uh, we've had several thousand in Beijing join us, both offline and online, probably over 5,000. Um, and for me, it's, it's the most fun to kind of get people to see the place, to smell the plants, to hear the sound of trickling water, to have all these aspects that otherwise they can never experience, um, and to really change their idea and perception of what it means, hopefully, to grow food, uh, certain types of food in the future. Pretty awesome. Well, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. You can find this episode's show notes on our website at streamsofprogress.com slash Aleska. That's A-L-E-S-C-A. We'd love to connect with you, so follow us on Facebook and Instagram or reach out via our website. If you can please take a few minutes to give us an honest rating on iTunes, this really makes a huge difference and improves our ability to reach more people in the UAE and beyond. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next week on Streams of Progress. Oh,